When I was in high school, I was a band geek. I'm just going to say it, okay? Artists, not athletes, right? Okay, so um, when, I was, uh, when I was in high school, I got a privilege to be a part of a marching band. And for us, you know, I had to make a choice pretty early on about who I was going to be, what I was going to make priority for my life. And our football team could barely even make playoffs. And our sophomore year, I got invited to go with our marching band to Australia. So I chose band. That's why I chose it. And so when we were in Australia, we had the privilege to actually go to Australia because we were uh, performing at the World Expo. We had a chance to kind of go along the eastern coast of Australia, which is just absolutely beautiful if you ever get a chance to go. But we went to Sydney and Brisbane and all along the Gold Coast to Surfers Paradise, things like that. And while we were there, our band would stop at different schools or academies or just different um, uh, civic areas or events, and we would perform, whether it be on stage or on a field. Part of the plan of our actual performance, though, was that we would, we would come flying out of the gate with these big brass openings and that we would just blow everybody's socks off, and then we would kind of like um, call a timeout. Our, our drum major would blow the whistle and uh, just kind of give everybody a break. So it would look like, you know, action on the set, and then all of a sudden everybody kind of dissipates to the side. So the drum major blows the whistle, and we're, we're here at the World Expo. So there's an auditorium that seats probably about 5,000 people, okay? And we're performing on this stage. It's in the round, and so, or mostly the round. They can see a, a large portion all, all the way around us. And while they're sitting there, and we blow the whistle, everybody kind of goes into this relaxed time, too. We go to the sides. We're kind of hanging out and having conversations. And I am told um, to leave the ranks and to go directly and start making relationship with people, okay? Start having conversation with people. Now, marching band, it's important to understand that alignment is key, right? To be in formation, to be in step is all a part of the conforming to being a part of a, a marching band. And in that process, what happens is anytime that somebody breaks rank or anytime that somebody steps out, usually they're, they're moving to the, towards the front uh, to have a solo or they're stepping out to create a new formation and others are going to follow. But anytime you break rank, anytime you break out of alignment and stand out, it's for an intentional purpose. So the whistle's blown, everybody kind of goes to the side, and everybody's kind of doing their own thing, and then they blow the whistle again, and they bring the entire band to attention. Now, I was told that, Danny, we want this to be a theatrical moment. We want this to kind of create some awkwardness, and for whatever reason, I do awkward well, so uh, I'm there. And so I'm given the task, find a couple friends, make relationships, so... Um, I found a couple Australian girls that I would talk to, and uh, I mean, i just trying to make sure that domestic relationships are great across the pond, you know, and so uh, I'm there, and as it happens, the, the whole audience is kind of focusing on the stage, but realizing they're missing somebody, and so the band begins to be awkward and looking around, looking around, looking around. Eventually, the drum major calls me out in front of the entire place to bring me back, and at this point, the gals that I've been talking to are just embarrassed as all get out because they think they found the one American who doesn't listen to anybody, and he's just me, you know? So I come running back on stage, and um, I do this performance, and what's interesting is the entire audience that was already leaning into our performance, they were like, now, now what's going to happen? Let's, let's see how they put it back together. And they leaned in, and the final end of our uh, performance, uh, this portion, I, we did T for two on tuba because I was a, I was a low brass guy, and uh, all the flag girls danced, and uh, it, it was uh, as a sophomore in high school, it was pretty much fed my ego. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been in counseling over it. I've had to repent of it. But anyway, there we stand. There the moment happens. And uh, it's like everybody's truly engaged. 
And it was an overwhelming experience because there was this intentionality of, of being called out, an intentionality of breaking the ranks, an intentionality of doing something of the overall con, uh, conforming of our marching band. And it really speaks a lot, I think, to First Peter chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go there today. First Peter chapter 4 really confronts in us a conversation about standing out. What does it look like as a Christian to be called out from the world that we're a part of so that we might step up in our obedience and ultimately stand out as a representation of Jesus? Here's the challenge, though, that each of us know is that as we get called out from the life that we're a part of, we're called to a life of holiness, that that stepping up in obedience often puts us in a scenario that when we stand out, there is challenges that come our direction. Submitted to the authority of God, but suffering in the environment that we're a part of oftentimes. If you've been with us in this, this conversation about fully known, we've had this discussion that 1 Peter is the concept of being fully known, even though 1 Peter never even uses those phrases. But it's the idea that God knows best. He knows everything about us and has experienced and endured life in a way that understands and even empathizes the plight and the journey that we've been a part of. That God fully knows what it means to suffer. God fully knows what it means to face temptation. God no fully knows what it's like to experience persecution. God fully knows what it's like to feel death. And yet God would call us to be a reflection after him. We've talked about this cadence that's in 1 Peter, and it kind of goes like this, that Peter begins to address a reality of where Christians are, there are implications that come from that reality. And ultimately, there is a call to obedience that we are supposed to adhere to, embrace, so that we're matured in the likeness of Christ. And, and maybe that's the best word for First Peter in a lot of ways, is that it is a, a big plate of maturity. That's what's being served up. That First Peter 1 calls us to a life of holiness that we are set apart for God's will and God's way, not only to embrace his character, but to live out his mission. The second of all, living out this life of being called out to being set apart for God, there's an understanding that we submit to the authority of God, that our life is under God's rule and God's reign. Understanding that as we submit our lives to the, to the mindset of, of having God first in everything, that there is a suffering, there's a process that we go through where God is refining us and shaping us into his likeness so that chapter 4 gives us this challenge, to live out that character, to live like people who represent Jesus so that the world around us might know what it's like to experience God face to face in personal ways. So here's the question. Here's kind of the challenge for today. Is it possible for Christians to stand out for good reasons? I mean, we see all the time across media, or most, most times Christians are seen in public. They're seen for standing out oftentimes for some ostracizing, oftentimes labeled about prejudice or hate. So what's it look like to really stand out? Because Jesus stood out and people flocked to him in both his purity and his mission, in his character and his conduct, people gravitated towards Jesus, experiencing both grace and truth, lived out in a life of love. And fully known people stand out in their love for others and their love for God. 
So 1 Peter 4 starts this way, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, let's read along, but it'll be on a screen for you today. Here's what it says. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Arm yourselves is a phrase that's like, take up a shield. It's like a, a calling to battle, okay? And that battle starts with an attitude. Why? Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans or people who don't know God or, or, or don't have a relationship with God choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgy, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them and they're reckless and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached to even those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Peter's pressing in a comparison contrast here through the word life. This word life throughout the Greek manuscript constantly talks about life as in the breath that we have or the living, the lifestyle by which we live out. And that's the context of 1 Peter 4, that Peter is calling us to a lifestyle, a living that looks like the very life of Jesus. And the question for us begins to become, what are we really living for? When we are called out in obedience to God, we are going to either step up into our obedience and embrace God's character, which means it will call us out from the world that we're a part of, or we will stand pat. And as Christians, I think we can be transparent that as many of us who love to bathe in the bath of grace, do you know what I mean by that? As Christians, when we go, hey, I love God's forgiveness. God loves us no matter what. Oh, oops, I made a mistake. You know, we, we kind of live in this, oh, thank God. It's kind of the lazy river of our faith. You know, God will pick up the bill. God will take care of it. For those of us that, that want to just live in that moment of grace, we miss the challenge of maturity that's coming from this passage, that there is a truth that each of us need to be growing towards, that our surrendering of our life to Christ should point us in the trajectory of the character of our Savior. And the way that we grow in that is through a lifestyle of submission and through a process, oftentimes, of suffering. What's interesting is Peter says, hey, your new life has kind of shocked a few people. Who you used to be is not who you are today. And so now people look at you and they go, well, what's so different? Why don't they do what they used to do? Why aren't they who they used to be, you know? Where's the guy that used to always tell the funny stories that used to shock everybody? Where's the one that used to stand on the tables? Where's the one who went streaking through the quad, right? You know, can I say that in church, right? They're surprised that you're not the guy or gal that you used to be. In our teaching team, there was actually a conversation and one of the young men said, they actually say they, they miss the old me. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've started to set a pace to your life with Jesus that has begun to, to call you out of some of the old habits and behaviors that you were a part of. But let me ask you some questions today. As a Christ follower, what is the mindset of your life? 
Can we pursue the happiness of self and still become the image of character that reflects our Savior? I think for many of us, we have to begin to reflect on what really sets the trajectory of our life in every day. Meaning there's a difference between saying, I believe in God, and then whether our day-to-day really looks like it. That many of us live under the, the title Christian, yes, I believe that God died for me, yes, I believe that Christ paid for my sins, yes, that I believe I have life everlasting, but the reality is that every day we have opportunities then to reflect that character. One, in our morality, but maybe more importantly, in the way that we live a life of love and witness to the world that we're a part of. And Peter's just raising this issue. Do you honor God in your life to the same value that you honor what people think about you or how people treat you or in keeping up with the Joneses? Do you honor God above all else? Do you pursue pursue your own personal preferences of comfort above surrender and obedience, even to the point of suffering? This is a challenging chapter. Peter's trying to set up this this comparison contrast of what it means to live in a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ and what it meant to live for ourselves. And we're all understanding this truth that when we step up in our obedience, we're going to stand out amongst our peers. Our life is going to look different, and it may even invite and cause conflict into our life. So friends, listen to this. Here's what I mean when we talk about being people of faith. What do I mean? I'm describing people who surrender to the will of Jesus in their everyday life. The kind of people who say, God, this is who I am. What will you do with my life? With everything. As people of faith, we are called to live in obedience, to live in submission to the authority of God. Under the authority of God, under the empowerment of God's spirit, educated through God's word, and living as an example of Jesus to the world around us. That's what it means to be people of faith. But when we do that, we're often seen as weird, aren't we? Maybe it's a sense of morality. Maybe it's a sense of mission. But when we surrender our lives in submission towards Jesus, oftentimes we're seen as weird to the world around us. And challenge someone who is in an intimate relationship with somebody and say, hey, have you considered being celibate until you're married? That's weird in today's society. Ask somebody just to, to give up the bottle and trust God. That's, that's different. Encourage someone to give of their time or their talent or their treasure. That's distinctly different. Because when we live for ourselves, over the submission of our suffering Savior, we begin to prioritize the things that we like and want and create our preferences and our comforts. And so things like suffering and submission actually become the agitators of our faith rather rather than the activators of our faith. So maybe this is the issue for you. As Peter begins to say, hey, you used to live one way, now you're going to live different. People are surprised by who you are, but understand we will all give an account one day before God. So here's the choice. If we want to be the kind of people that live more than just for the title of Christian, maybe here's the tension we need to begin to choose today. It's this. You can be judged by God and live for man, 
or you can be judged by man and live for God. You can't do both. They're in opposition to each other. So if God begins to call us out and call us up into our obedience, so we step up into our obedience and begin to stand out in our faith, we will have to recognize that at some point we have to be the kind of people that let go of the sin that's so actively a part of our lives so that we can ultimately embrace the life that God has called us to. You can't hold on to both. You can't please both sides. Look what it says as it goes on in verse 7. The end of all things is near. He's describing the return of Jesus, the second comings. So therefore, be alert and so, of sober mind so that you can pray. Above all, meaning the priority of all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one that speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's given us this great encouragement at this point. Because of who we were and who we're becoming, because of our former life and what our new life is, we need to live differently. To be of sober mind, to be alert, to be aware of what's going on in the world around us, looking for opportunities that we might be able to step up in our obedience and stand out in our faith. Because there are people around us that need to know Christ. There are people around us who are needing the service of God, the love of relationship, the opportunity for people to guide and to gauge for them what true life really looks like. And so if we're not sober enough, Peter starts with, hey, the end of all things is near. We only have so much time in this world, and Christ will return. Jesus will return, and none of us control when that is. So how do we make the most of every opportunity? How do we become the kind of Christ followers that just don't live uh, as title alone, of Christian alone, but how do we become the kind of Christ followers that our lifestyle, our obedience to Christ, is what speaks to the one we serve? Here's what Peter is describing for us in this lifestyle. There are four commands, four commands that he presses into. And the first one is this, to pray. Some of you are like, "Ah, I got that one covered, right? I pray over my meal. I pray when my sports teams are down. I pray when I need to write my taxes. I pray when, I mean, right? That's really not what we're describing here. It's okay to pray in those circumstances. I mean, I believe God cheers for my team as much as you believe God cheers for your team, but... But what we're talking about is the kind of life that says we are centered on the discipline and the practice of surrendering everything of our life before God. What's that look like? It's like rolling out of bed in the morning and when your feet touch the floor, you just say this real quickly, God, everything that I am and everything I do is yours. It's stepping into work and you unlock your door and you see your coworker across the way that drives you crazy, and you go, everything I am and all that I have is yours, right? 
So when you're driving down Prospect, and all you need is your cell phone fixed, and it's just totally jammed because everybody's up there for whatever reason, and you look at the person next to you who's clearly on their phone and not paying attention, and you say, all that I am and all that I have is yours. It's centering our life and our relationship before God that we would communicate with God in such a way that his will and his character might have precedence. It would be the priority in every area of our lives. If prayer is our foundation, though, there's a priority that's going to be seen in the community that we're a part of. And Peter says it this way. He says, love deeply. Love deeply. This idea of loving deeply is an athletic term that means to stretch or to strain or to go beyond what you would naturally do when you love, right? Uh, I've heard about this. I'm not a jogger, but I've heard that if you do jog and you begin to get that burn, you're supposed to kick harder. You're supposed to push through, press through the wall. The same thing is true about your muscles when it comes to love. There are natural relationships that you're a part of that when you begin to step out into those relationships, we all begin to pull back. And Peter is saying, no, love deeply, stretch beyond, allow love to be the primary characteristic of your life so that you can love in ways that does not look like the limited nature of everybody else around you. That's why 1 Peter 10 says it this way. Hatred stirs up conflict. But love covers a multitude of wrongs. It's a cross-reference to that very verse, that love covers a multitude of sins, right? That's why, like some of us who are parents, right? Our kids drive us crazy, but there's nobody else we seem to love more at times, right? We're always giving them grace, always trying to help them back around. Love should be that way for all people. We should learn to love with the graciousness of God and to live out the truth of our character while we're around people. Why? Because it covers. It covers a multitude of sin. Love is the gravy of spirituality. Can I say that? Love is the gravy of spirituality. It goes over everything. Mike Prince, one of our former elders, was in our teaching team planning, and he just said it this way. It's never wrong to show love. Think about that. Next time you're in a conflict or a crisis, if you show love rather than retaliation, what might happen in that moment? Next time you're in a, a moment at work where it's clear people are, people are backbiting and manipulating situations, what, is, what does it look like to step in and to still love when people have been so evil? The third command is this. Show hospitality. I, I like that. Don't you like hospitality? I like to receive hospitality. I don't mind giving hospitality. But the caveat of that verse, do you, did you see the descriptor behind it? Show hospitality without grumbling. Now, I need to say a disclaimer before I, I use this illustration because this is not ammo for anybody to use at Sunday lunch today, okay? Okay. But if you're unsure about showing hospitality without grumbling, looks like, it's like being invited to somebody's house and they've made a big dinner for everybody, but as you come in and you get ready to gather around the table, somebody decides to explain to what extent they went to, how hard they worked, they shouldn't have to do dishes, they've got, anybody been to that table? I've set that table, can I say that? 
You know what happens when you're being hospitable, but you grumble about all the work that you do? It doesn't feel very hospitable, does it? It feels like, why didn't we just go to Arby's and save all the time for everybody, right? And so, so Peter says, hey, let's do this. As Christ followers, let's open our homes. Let's set our tables. Let's free up our time that we would engage in relationship with people, that they would have proximity to us. And we would do it with an attitude of gratefulness because of what God has done in us and through us. They would experience it with us. To pray, to love deeply, to show hospitality. And last of all, he says, steward our gifts. Steward our gifts. The truth of the matter is every one of us have gifts. And in this passage, there's those who have speaking gifts that I have. There are serving gifts, which is also what I have, but the descriptor is a difference between those who are publicly teaching or encouraging or speaking in a way that it is from God. Now, none of us can ever really be the voice of God. Only the Holy Spirit plays that in our world, right? But as we speak into our community of faith, there is a role of priority and place for every gift. Every gift matters. Every gift is significant, but every gift is always at the, beha- at, at the placement of God's glory and God's purpose, stewarded, meaning not just freely thrown out, but stewarded and harnessed in a way that we use it for God's glory and for the benefit of growth of others. It's kind of like this, though. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I love our Sundays when we get people to sign up and we encourage people to serve. But our goal would be that 100% of our people, everyone, be engaged in service. But many times when we talk about service, even through our time and our talent and our treasure, we we have new people that sign up, but we never quite get everybody to sign up. And let me connect a couple of things for you here. If we are called out to live the mission of Jesus. We are called to step up in obedience so that we stand out, meaning we step out of the pace of this world so that those who are living in it might be able to experience God in new ways. Every time that we challenge our church to step up into service, and many of us may leave and say it's on somebody else, here's what you're doing. You're stepping back. And in stepping back in service, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm not for the mission and will of God getting to people who need it. Now, that may be offensive. I've been offensive before. But that's what it's saying, is that God has given you gifts. You have gifts to use. Help them find their place, their priority, and their purpose, and then step up so that you can stand out, not for your glory or for your credit, but so that the world might know God because of your own obedience. That you would be the one to help lead others closer to him. Last hour, it was, it was full like this, maybe a little bit more full, and all of a sudden, people began to leave my message, which, I'll just be honest, I'm human enough that when people start leaving the room, I'm like, what's going on? Is it me? Is it whatever? And apparently, just a note came on our screen that said, we need help in the nursery. Doggone it, if 15, 20 people didn't get up out of my message and go help. Isn't that awesome? 
I wish I could have timed that. I wish I could have set up this portion of the message so it happened right now, but I, I don't control that, right? But that's what happens. When we're called out into obedience towards God, we have a chance to step up and to stand out for his glory and his honor. Here's what we know. When we follow Jesus, we stand out and people take notice. Jesus stepped up in obedience. Jesus stood out in the community that he's a part of, and people flocked to him. And so maybe you're tracking with me. Maybe you get this, okay, I, I get the whole prayer thing. I get the whole stewarding of my gifts. I get the whole hospitality thing, whatever. But just so we make this clear, as Christians, we should be known for love. We should be known what we're for. But this is where mission drift begins to show up because too many Christians are really known for what they're against more than what they're for, right? We think Christians are people who, who don't smoke, drink, or chew or go out with girls that do, right? It's, only, it's, only a, it's a pledge of morality. That's what Christianity is. No, that's the wrong emphasis. Yes, there is a portion of our morality and character before God, but there is also the leveraging and submission of our lives in love so that we would serve for God's mission and glory. Let me say it to you this way. We are to be known what we're for, not what we're against. We are to be known for love and not simply sinning. But catch this. You can be sin-free and still not be on the mission of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? You, you may have your morality together, but there is a mission to be lived out. The goal of Christianity is not simply to get our act together so we don't behave badly in public. The goal of Christianity is that we would be made alive in Christ and we would stand as the presence of the living God, that we would be agents of his grace and love and truth, and that our testimony, our life, would speak life into a world that needs to know him personally. Let me say it again. When we follow Jesus, we stand out and people take notice. How do I know that? Well, not only does scripture give us that practice or that principle, but, but think about this. A couple of Friday nights ago, we gathered for a big party in this room, right? There's 170 guests that came and we were hospitable to them. We hosted Night to Shine. It's a, a prom for special needs students and families. It required so that we could have a buddy for everybody and be able to put the entire event on over 470 volunteers at different points. Nobody else is throwing that party in this community. Some would say maybe that's weird. That's strange. That's normal in the character of Jesus. And when we do that, I hear things. I walk throughout the community and people are like, hey, you're the church that does. Hey, you're the church that this. You're the church that... Whether it's our foster parent Christmas family parties that we throw... Whether it's when we go to Wiley Elementary, Wiley Elementary is perhaps the poorest elementary school in our area. No church was connected to Wiley Elementary until we partnered with it. It's in Urbana. And we've shown up and we've done the let's bring coffee and donuts and bagels for teachers. That's fun. We've even shown up and helped them put in their garden or, or bring uh, refreshments for a party that they had so they could show off their science garden that they put in the, towards the back of their building. But what I love the most is the moments that I see the teachers that attend our church being a witness in that school. When I see some of our staff and some of our small groups go and show up and volunteer in those classrooms to be mentors or aides and serve right alongside. Because those are the moments 
Those are the moments that the little kids come up and say, why are you here? And while I wish we could just put a big poster up that says, because Jesus is here, we will stand in the gap with love. We will be hospitable. We will pray for opportunities to be able to care for these families. And we will steward our gifts to serve them. That's what it looks like to step up, to stand out, and to live a life of love. What's it look like for you? What's it look like for you to surprise somebody with life of love? Is it to go to that coworker that so greatly annoys you and to be gracious? Is it to recognize when somebody at work maybe needs help and maybe you can't fix it, but you can help them through their process to find the help they need? Is it beginning to be the, the kind of person that learns how to love even, even difficult, even hateful people? I have a friend of mine recently that sent me an email. It's about his church plant. He's been planting out west, and he's in a pretty tough area. And the, the email that got sent said, when the bully comes to church. He began to describe a story about how his daughter is going to school and there's a bully that's been after her. And that bully and her family showed up at their church. One week, two weeks, three weeks. And you know, as God would have it, that family is now making that their church home. I can tell you personally, there's nothing more difficult than learning to love the bully of your children. But you know what? Those are the moments that I get to, I get to see God do something that I could never do on my own. And those are the moments where we are stretched, we are challenged, and we are conformed into the very likeness of God. Let's move to our time of response. It is not easy to take on the mindset of submission. And it is not easy to live through a life of suffering. But in the partnership of submission and suffering, God begins to shape us into his likeness and not our own. In the opening pages of creation, there is this verse that says that the, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the earth. That word hovering is not necessarily floating. It's more like agitating. It's stirring up. And I can tell you that in the study of 1 Peter and going through this as a congregation and kind of dealing in it verse by verse, there's been an agitation in my own soul. Not one of rising up and coming at God, but an agitation of, God, I know that that step means I need to grow. God, I know that if I follow you through this circumstance or relationship, it's going to be painful. But I know if I do, I'll look more like you than me. And I can see it on some of the faces in this room that as we start to talk about maybe next steps of faith, about what it means to not only be a Christian by title, but in lifestyle, that there's a tugging. There's an agitation. 
As Christians, we are not shocked when the world around us presses against us. But I think what scares me even more is Christians who say they are living for God, but have not felt suffering or struggle in a while. I think the agitation of the Holy Spirit is perhaps in our congregation in some ways going, have we plateaued in our faith and are we just drifting in trying to be nice or better than the Joneses? Or are we truly surrendered before our God to say, have your way in me? Next week in the middle of our worship service, if you've been a part of our baptism Sundays, you know that we'll bury people in the waters of baptism and it it expresses this death, burial, and resurrection that we are surrendering our lives before God that God may have his way in us. And maybe you've never had the chance to make that decision. Maybe you've never had the chance to respond in faith and obedience to God's word. And maybe you're going, should, should I do that? Yeah, you should. Because next week as we gather in worship, there's going to be this moment where friends and family are going to come forward. And as we baptize people into Christ, there's going to be this celebration. A celebration of dying to an old way to live a new life. Not just in Christian by title that, God, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for my life everlasting. But God, thank you for giving of yourself. And may I join in this way of surrendering of myself through submission and suffering. So that people would not see me, but they would see you. That's an incredible movement when God begins to hover and stir things up so that new life can happen. What's the decision that you need to make today? There are stations around the room that if you've been with us before, you know that as the music begins to play and we begin to sing, people will move to these stations. Some will come forward to these benches to pray and maybe it's a surrendering to God and say, God, have your way. Or maybe it's a prayer of thanksgiving of God, I can see where you're taking me and while it's been difficult, God, I will follow. There are six tables around the room. We encourage you to go to the one closest to you to take part in what we call communion. There is bread and there is juice. And it's a reminder that Jesus said, this is my broken body, this is my shed blood that he gave of himself. He died a death on a cross that was our death to pay for our sins and provide life everlasting. And that death, that burial, that resurrection now fuels in us a new life empowered by his spirit that we would be forever surrendered, submitted to his will even when times are tough. And then there are four give and respond boxes around the room. And they are there so that you can take your connect card and if you want to make a decision about baptism, you can put your name and information on it and put the connect card in the box and we'll follow up with you and we'll prepare to celebrate next week with you. Or maybe there's something that you just simply want prayer on in your life. But some of us will also give of our tithes and our offerings. We'll open the Give app, G-Y-V-E, and we'll pick our church and we'll choose to give a gift. Because all that we are and all that we have is God's. Leveraged for his glory and the people who have yet to know him. I'm going to ask you to stand if you do that now. And we're going to do what we call a responsive reading. And we're going to read the end of 1 Peter chapter 4. 
I will read a verse starting in verse 12, and then you'll read verse 13. I'll read 14, you read 15, and so on and so forth. Aaron will help lead you as you're supposed to read your verse. But literally, I will read my verse out loud, and then you will read back out loud collectively. We call this a responsive reading. And what we wanted to do in finishing our service today was just to root this in the scripture of our text, to summarize stepping up in obedience and standing out in faith to let go of our sin and embrace the life God's called us to. Here's what it says in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's continue to respond.